served my country and fell in love with me. Travel the world being all I could be. God showed me here is where I'd be always on time. Thank you so much for listening to Heroes Media Group. My name is Bridgette McCoy. I'm the CEO and founder of Women Veterans Social Justice Network. Today we have the wonderful opportunity to be talking with Kim Bauer. She is a veteran and she's going to be talking a little bit about her experiences in the military, her transition, and what she's doing now. Hey, Kim, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, Bridgette, it is my pleasure. Thank you. So it's Always interesting to me um, when I have guests on because people think like, oh, you know, uh, I don't know how you get find people and all of this stuff for these great, you know, <laughs> narratives. And I'm like, well, I kind of was trolling the internet and <laughs> saw someone doing something great or saying something great, and I was like, hey, you got a minute? Would you like, you know, would you come on for a recorded discussion? And so let our listeners kind of know how we met to even have well, this conversation. <laughs> Well, you, you stalked me, basically. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I'm, I'm a member of several, you know, women's veteran groups on Facebook, and somebody had posted a comment or a question about Onward to Opportunity, which is a fantastic organization that, that provides free education in, like, human resources, project management, that sort of thing, but I digress. So I had commented on that thread that I was getting ready to start a course through them, and you connected with me that way, and now we're best friends. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> well, tell us a little bit about your military, why you decided to choose to go into the military. You know, in hindsight, I would like to say that I've always had sort of a sense of civic responsibility and, you know, a desire to make the world a better place and things like that. Um, as an adult, I think that that's kind of what it all stemmed from. But when I was 18, all I was thinking was, you know, what the hell am I going to do with my life? I was in um, northwest Indiana. My parents were, um, you know, blue-collar workers, didn't push college on any of us, not because they didn't want to, just because they didn't know how to, and we didn't have the financial resources to go to college. It wasn't like... It is today, you know, we're talking early 80s. It wasn't like today when you're more aware of all the possibilities financially to help you with college. So I knew I wanted to do something bigger with my life, and um, the military seemed like a good option. So I did, um, you know, four years active duty, a couple years reserve, um, and I've been out for a long, long time. And so I, um, you know, did most of my time in Germany. Um, which was an amazing experience, and um, I was a combat telecommunications operator, um, an MLS that does not exist anymore thanks to technology, which was basically just transmitting and receiving classified messages, and then I had a secondary MLS of 71 Lima, a clerk typist, um, you know, a traditional kind of female MLS, which we can talk about later. <laughs> but, yeah, so... So that's that's my experience with the military. And then, you know, after that, I went into law enforcement, which seemed like a good civilian segue, um, and then kind of found my passion for teaching and learning, um, got my master's degree, my teaching certification, and I taught at the 
the public school level, and now I teach in college and also work for a government contractor. So I've had a good life so far. Wow, that is amazing. And it's funny because the job, I, did you say you dated, te- did you say telecom? Because I, my uh-huh. job was a 72 golf in the military. Oh, that's crazy. <laughs> so it sounds like we had the same uh, job distinction. <laughs> yeah, perfect. it does, for sure. Yeah. yeah, so that, you know, led you to law enforcement at all? I mean, that's... yeah. Okay. Yes. So when I got out, you know, I came back home to Indiana, and I had divorced um, the first time and did the usual, you know, waiting tables, not sure what to do. And I just still kind of had that desire to do something bigger than myself. And, um, you know, one thing I always remember my dad saying to me when I was a little kid was, um, you know, you're destined for greatness. And he would say, you are my shining star, burn brightly. And I just always felt like I was put on earth to to do something better. And and I don't even really know how to explain it other than that. So, yeah, so went into law enforcement and spent about 12 years, <clears throat> excuse me, about 12 years doing that, which was wow. amazing. Wow. And so basically we kind of glossed over your transition out of the military but what was that like? Was it, did, did you just like one day say, you know, I've done enough in the military and it's not now time to move on? Or were, were there factors that, um, you know, kind of moved you into that direction? You know, give us a little bit of insight on how, you know, you, you know, what that looked like for you. Yeah. It, it, I never considered making a lifelong career out of it. And I wish I had had, a mentor who maybe saw some potential in me um, and encouraged me to stay in. Um, I was married at the time to another service member, and he re-enlisted for a couple of years, um, and, and it was coming up on the time when I could re-enlist. There was no guarantee that we would go to the same duty station together. And, you know, I was a, a dumb 21, 22-year-old girl, and it just seems like, the natural thing to go ahead and leave the military and follow him. Mm. Yeah, well, that happened. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it happened more than we discussed a lot of times because I think um, a, a little over a third of the military um, force is dual um, households. Both the the men and the women serve um, consecutively. Um, uh-huh. and are deployed sometimes at the same time and all of those things. And so a lot of times, a lot of times the women um, have to decide uh, for the sake of the family or the sake of the marriage, you know, if they're going to continue to stay in the military. And so they get out. And um, especially during, if you're a Gulf War Air veteran, that was way more common than I think mm-hmm. now the various, various service branches really work to um keep people together. They have a process that's more streamlined, I'd say. Uh, I won't say it's perfect because I just spoke with another veteran who talked about how difficult that process was. Um, but I think it's it, it more so now than when, you know, if you served during Gulf War or Vietnam or any of those other times. In the, uh, it, it's a lot more, um, it was a lot less common. Let's say it that way. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I would hope so because, the, you know, all branches of the military need to do more to try to keep good people in. 
And, you know, back when I was in, it was just, it just seemed like the natural thing to do. And, you know, it makes me kind of angry in a way because you, you didn't see the husband struggling with those no. decisions, you know. Should I stay in or get out and follow my wife? It was just a given that we yeah. would follow the husband. But, you know, you and I could talk about that forever. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we could definitely talk about those things forever. So uh, so when you decided, okay, I'm going to follow the crew, you know, I'm going to follow a lot of support, let's say it a different way, to be very clear, because I, I don't necessarily like to think that we follow anything, but more if I want to support my spouse's career and the best way that I can maintain the marriage and support the career is for me to um, exit the military. Like I said, especially during that time, uh, it was not as common for women to stay in and um, manage two households, you know, one going one way and one going the other way. Um, being deployed or, or being, you know, um, sent to different duty stations. And so you basically went in thinking that you were going to be in for a while and then needed to give up that career for that. Did you feel some sense of angst about giving up the career or, uh, or was it just like, well, that's, that's just it and just keep it going? Um, cause now we're looking backwards where a time site is, you know, 2020. Yeah. <laughs> but you can still tap into how you felt um, in that and, during that time frame. And you know, now I I feel that angst and regret. Um, you know, I'd be way retired by now. Um, <laughs> right, <laughs> way retired, living the high life, hanging with my dog and all that. But you know, at the time, it honestly just seemed like the normal, natural thing to do. Now, I don't know if that was because of the generation in which I grew up um, or just, you know, uh, women's roles in general then or whether it was something within me. I, I really don't know, to be honest with you. Wow, okay. Well, that's something I, I'm sure um, many of our listening audience, um, especially our women who served, can probably, you know, have a sense of, like, that that same experience of, like, where, mm-hmm. where how do I, you know, how do I feel about the, the decisions I, I made? Did I feel like I had to make, I had to make that decision, or did I feel like there was space for me to make what, the, you know, a lot of decisions, you know, I had a lot of choices. Right. Because sometimes it is just, you can do this or this. And that's mm-hmm. it. There's no, there's there are no choices. <laughs> and then right. sometimes there are choices. However, we don't always know all of them. And so, um, because we don't have that that uh, experience of or that education of that particular um, you know knowledge base, then it's like, okay, well now what do I do? Because mm-hmm. I didn't even know that existed. And so, right. And so I kind of if I'm if I'm hearing you correctly, I'm feeling like that's where you're coming from at this point. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, I would think that things have changed nowadays and that when, when a service member is coming on the, the end of her contract, that there's somebody there who reaches out as a mentor or teacher or guide or whatever and says, look, you know, you've got potential here. Consider staying in and, and making a career of that. But when I was in, there was no such thing. Um, it was just mm-hmm. you're at the end of your contract and you want to leave. Okay, go ahead. And there was no direction 
um, as to what you could do with yourself now in the civilian world or anything like that. So you just get out and you kind of flounder and, and hope that you come out the better side, the other side, you know, okay. Yeah, that, that, I know what that experience is like. I got out in the 90s, in 1991, and I, uh, basically didn't want to get out, but I got out and I felt like that was really, um, you know, it was that there were no other options. And no one told me that, mm-hmm. oh, if you get out over here, you can go into another branch of service right. or you can do some other thing. It was just like, uh, give us your stuff back <laughs> and mm-hmm. here's your ticket home. And so, um, so yeah, I think uh, um, I would have to really begin to ask some of our, um, uh, some of our sister vets who are getting out now and, got out in uh, maybe the last five or so years it, what that experience is like. I believe that uh, Sydney, who did a, a, one of our other podcasts, for our listening audience, we did a podcast with uh, um, one of our veteran women, Sydney. She um, actually has gotten out in the last ten years, five or ten years, and she did talk about her experience. So we might need to revisit that and and maybe have some more discussion with some of our um, post nine vets who've just gotten out recently, and see if that's something mm-hmm. that they've, you know, that has changed. Because this, you know, if it hasn't, it needs to. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. So let's talk about. Um, so once you got out and you, you know, began to get into the workforce, um, did you realize that there were um, there were challenges to um, scaling into the workforce at an appropriate level for your um, experience and knowledge base, or did you just get in and you're like, yeah, I'm I'm at the right job at the right time, making the right amount of money? No, never made the right amount of money, but <laughs> that's, that's another story entirely. But you know, when I went into law enforcement, it was it was the right place for me to be. It was. Um, an amazing, wonderful career that I loved very much. Um, of course, it's not like it used to be. Um, it's mm. really tough to be a cop these days. Um, but yeah, it seemed like, it seemed like home for me in terms of a career. Not necessarily being a cop, but being, but, but doing that kind of work. Um, you know, helping the community and lifting others up and, and things like that. So that, that has always seemed like, um, the right place for me, and I wonder if that's a common theme among veterans in general, you know, just that innate desire to um, improve our lot as humans. I don't know. I think so. Uh, based on the thousands of hours of narratives that I've heard, I feel like that, that is, is, a key, is, a, is a foundational element. Um, it may not be um, something that out in the forefront, but I really feel like it's like, wow, you know, everyone, after they decided it was something they wanted to do, um, you know, for educational or financial means, for career means or whatever, at the core, when you stripped all of that away, that that was sitting there in the center. So, mm-hmm. so yeah. Yeah, but that, I think that's just right. my, my perspective of, you know, um, I guess quantifying a bunch of, you know, Data of words that people that people have said um, over and over and over again, just hearing some central themes, and that seems to be one one of of them. You know, yeah. The search for significance um, was, I think, is probably the other ones wanting to to 
um, be significant or or contribute something significant is probably mm-hmm. a, a, a big part as well. Yeah, I think you're right. You know, people like you and I probably get a lot of our own personal fulfillment by by doing for others. Um, not necessarily having things done for us, and so that's probably a common a common theme among military members as well. I bet. Oh yeah, oh yeah, I believe so. I believe so. Um, again, we'd have to. These are all great questions, <laughs> and you and I can talk some more <laughs> offline about some other ideas I'm getting about like what we could do to make to make this like like yeah, that's that we we might need to pull some data and figure that uh-huh. out, you know. So so you move, you went in the military, it, it just seems like everything happened kind of smooth for the process. There, um, in my experience, there was a lot of bumps in the road in getting in the military, being in the military, getting out of the military, and then post-military transition, which most people don't even talk about the post-military transition because they only talk mm-hmm. about the transition from physically being in the military to um, not being in the military. But there is also, I think, every five or ten years, there's a bump in your post-military transition where you're, mm-hmm. you know, redefining who you are and redefining what is important to you and redefining who you need to be in your sphere of influence and yeah. all those things. And so... Um, yeah, maybe sure. you can give us some insight on on those areas. Um, you could choose what you want to yeah, talk that, about. But yeah, that is, that's crazy that you even mentioned that. I mean, you, you don't even know this part about me. Um, my um, kind of reinvention started, I guess, about two years ago. I was in um, an 18-year marriage, and um, the Me Too movement started. Okay. And yeah, well, you know where I'm going to go with this, and. It hit me really hard, and I wasn't sure why. And then, you know, memories and things started to come back of of things that had happened to me in the military, and that transitioned to me changing myself physically and being in the gym every day and being hard to kill. (laughs) And, um, you know, finally coming to grips with with military sexual trauma that had happened to me when I was in, and um, it changed me. The, the realization and finally knowing that I had to deal with that changed me exponentially um, in that, you know, I chose to end my marriage and I've moved back home and I'm at a phase in my life where, you know, I'm not quite sure what's next, but that's kind of a good thing too because, um, you know, the sky's the limit. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and heal those wounds and um, do what I need to do to be good for me. Um so, yeah. Yeah, and for our listeners, thank you so much for your willingness to share that with us because, uh, you know, I know that that is a, a tough area, um, especially because there's so much um, not known about it um, from the from the military part. But for our listening audience, military sexual trauma is um, sexual, um, you know, it's a crime in the military, uh, however, it can be everything from unwanted touching and, and, and words to up to including physical assault and rape. And so uh, there are about uh, 26,000 men and women who are sexually assaulted every single year in the military. And these are not 
my ideas and, and, and thoughts and figures, these are the Department of Defense's um, numbers that they have related to um, restricted and unrestricted reports. And so um, I've been working in that area for about <laughs> at least 10 years. And uh, in the time, they've increased the money to teach people not to touch each other inappropriately and not to, you know, rape and all of that. They've increased all of the, the training, the the you know, uh, the awareness and all of those things, and still the numbers have continued to go up. And so mm-hmm. the idea is that it's, it has, uh, uh, that it's that people are, are reporting more. And I said, well, let's be logical. I'm not a mathematician and I'm not a statistician, but you can only have more reports if, if it's continuing to happen. Exactly. <laughs> it, right. It, the numbers would go down even if people were reporting it more mm-hmm. because you have less. You cannot have more of something. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? It's like yeah, I people. You're not. Sm- you can't tell me that you're that you really don't know this. You're being disingenuous by saying that. You're you're trying to fool me, I guess. But mm-hmm. it's unfortunate that um, our men and women are experiencing that. Fifty-two um, percent <clears throat> of the rapes that happen in the military are men, and so they cannot make it a gendered um, discussion. Although they try to. Uh, and so it's important that, you know, our listening audience know that, you know, organizations like Protect Our Defenders and RAIN and um, there's a couple of other organizations that are out there, but those are the two that are mainly that I work with um, to direct our men and women who have experienced sexual trauma in the military um, to those organizations. And, again, I want to say to anyone listening, I, I deeply regret that you've experienced uh, sexual trauma in the military um, there are organizations that can help you, and mm-hmm. also to Kim, I deeply regret that you experienced that because it's um, as a sexual assault survivor and the Me Too movement and all of those things. I clearly um, have empathy <clears throat> because I've experienced it, and at the same time, I am an ally, not because I just I experienced it, but because I I align myself with survivors and mm-hmm. not with the perpetrators. And so it's important for us to recognize that as well, that the allies are people who are speaking on be- speaking it to the benefit of the survivor and speaking mm-hmm. to the benefit of changing laws so that the survivors, um, we have less and less survivors and that the criminals are put behind bars and put on the registry. If someone says they're an ally, and they're not, they're not having that kind of language. They're not an ally. They're a sheep, they're a wolf in sheep's clothing. And mm-hmm. again, I need for people to hear that as well, because I think it's important that we, we have that. And I, I want to get back to you though, because I feel like I'm taking <laughs> up too much time talking about that, uh, specifically, uh, from my perspective. But what do you, how do you feel about that? What do you feel about, um, because there's a lot of things in the news and people are talking about it and, um, and, and so we have people saying, well, because I'm a veteran and I, I experienced trauma in the military, I can speak on this topic, um, from a way of like, you need to listen to me because I know what's best to do. So, um, what do you, how do you? Yeah, I don't, I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's a matter of knowing what's best to do, but I think whenever somebody has firsthand experience in a certain situation, their, their perspective is valid and important. Um, and just as another example, you know, in December I'll be celebrating 
20 years of being a breast cancer survivor. Mm. Um, and, and so I try to be a voice for that as well. And when, when people are newly diagnosed, just giving my input and, or just lending an ear or helping with resources or whatnot. And I, and I think speaking for myself, I feel a certain sense of responsibility to reach out and help people in those situations, whether it's breast cancer or um, military sexual assault or or being a first-generation college student in my family or, or whatever, you know? That's, that is beautiful. I really appreciate you bringing that perspective. Um, and the fact that you uh, are so um, open with that, that, that those are the things that you're doing. And in WVSJ, we are big on philanthropy. And people say, oh, well, I'm a volunteer. And I say, you know, when you're giving hundreds of hours and tens of thousands of dollars and tens <laughs> of thousands of dollars of your time and your intellect and all of these things, you're no longer a, a volunteer. You're a philanthropist. Now, you may not yeah. be giving as much as Bill Gates or someone of that nature or Warren Buffett, but based on your income and your your, you know, influence, you're a philanthropist. And so, especially our women veteran, we are a huge population of philanthropists. And it troubles me that, um, and that's something else me and you could talk about offline, Uh, it troubles me that, uh, uh, you know, the news and everything is always talking about how, oh, we're struggling and we don't have jobs and there's homelessness, and but no one um, has really, and I guess maybe that's my job, to, to bring forth that the tremendous amounts of philanthropy that women veterans, um, the, the dollars, the time, the, uh, <clears throat> the intellect are, are giving to back to our communities to make them better. And so let's talk a little bit about your philanthropy because you just kind of alluded to it in that your last comment. Um, give us some more because, I mean, obviously you're doing a tremendous amount of work in the community. You're listening to WVSJ. The Women Veteran Social Justice Network. Well, I mean, I try, and I don't. I don't know that I'd even consider it philanthropy because you know I'm I'm broke most of the damn time. But <laughs> but but just as a quick side note, what something you mentioned, you know, you don't see it in the news. Well, bad news sells better than good news does. I mean, mm-hmm. and that's got to be the reason for that. But you know, I mean, I've I've served my time with, um, you know, certain organizations like the American Cancer Society, um, sharing certain groups with them. Um, Young Survivors Coalition is another amazing organization that I that I worked with for a bit of time. Um, and, and one of the most proudest moments, I think, of my life in, in terms of my breast cancer experience has been with um, a nonprofit called the Grace Project. Um, the, the wonderful photographer, Sharice, is trying to, to photograph um, a set number of breast cancer survivors, and she's got a subset of the Grace Project called the Athena Division, where she photographs um, female military members who've um, had mastectomies due to breast cancer. Um, and I was able to take part in that and have my portrait taken at the uh, wow. Women's um, Military Memorial in D.C., and met some other amazing, strong women there, some of whom have since passed away from it. Um, but, you know, 20 to 40 percent of um, military women are more likely to get breast cancer than our civilian counterparts. So I like mm. to to have my voice heard. Um, 
And then in terms of, you know, my, my military issues, I, you know, I finally decided to hold the military accountable for the way that they failed me when I was in. And um, as soon as, you know, my, my claim is, is processed, my ultimate goal would be to work with um, other female veterans who are in need of, I don't, a shoulder, a voice, support of some kind. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so I just kind of do what I can, I guess. Wow. That's philanthropy. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, that's it at its core. You are absolutely doing it um, at a high level and um, very humble in the process of it. And, and those two things together um, make the difference um, between someone who's just doing things in the community to build their career or pad their resume and really mm-hmm. people who are philanthropists because you're doing it um, from a core value point of view. It's exactly what you said. <clears throat> so I appreciate um, appreciate. Your perspective that you're not a philanthropist, but I think um, <laughs> over the next few weird, few few hours or days, as a uh, you being an English professor and uh, <laughs> and someone who who teaches um, from that perspective, I think it'd be great for you to to really maybe journal about that and create um, a narrative um, about your work uh, and in the community, and then put it alongside of a Bill Gates or a Warren Buffett, remove the dollar amount from it and just yeah. put it alongside of that and look at it and say, does this, does this really meet the, the, the criterion? Cause you're in a set, you do assessments and things like that all the time. So you know how to, mm-hmm. how to evaluate things and assess things. So and that's really where we want our, our listeners to go. We want our listeners to hear the narratives of other women who served our organizational leaders who are serving to support women veterans and to be able to say, you know, I never had the language to describe that, but that's exactly yeah. what I'm doing. Or I, I, no one ever, like you said, mentored. Or I didn't have a mentor or somebody to talk to me. I can listen to these podcasts and I can get a little bit of that mentoring, a little bit of that uh, um, guidance to help me go through the next process. So, mm-hmm. you know, so basically um, tell us a little bit about, uh, some of the other work that you're doing, because I, I kind of alluded to it with you um, being a coach, a career coach, and a, a career advisor and, and a professor at a, at a uh, community college. Yeah, so I'm, I'm just a little busy. Um, I work full-time, <laughs> full-time for a government contractor, um, and our, our main focus is providing educational and career resources to military spouses, which I absolutely love. Um, there's a particular scholarship that certain military spouses are eligible for um, that they can use towards an associate's degree license or certification to put them into high-demand portable career fields, which I think is um, so important because so many military spouses are facing um, significant unemployment, much more so than their civilian counterparts, I think partly in due, due to the transient lifestyle, you know, of the military family. And, you know, we help with resumes, mock interviews, um, you know, researching job growth or decline salary, just all sorts of things like that. So that takes up, you know, a good 40, 50 hours of my week. Um, 
And then I also um, teach English comp um, at a local community college, which I love as well. Um, you know, my both my bachelor's and master's are in English, so English is, is my love. I've got a love of language and words and things like that, so I like to try to pass that on to people as well. Um, and then I'm starting this project management um, course through um, uh, Syracuse University next month. So, yeah, so a little busy. But, you know, if you're, if you're not challenging yourself, you're not growing. And who wants to stay stagnant, right? Yeah, you're busy just a smidge. <laughs> just a smidge. But you're right. If you're not challenging yourself, and I think um, what I found with, especially my military um, sisters, just veteran in the military, it's just like there's one mission after the next, after the next, after the next. And it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's just this continuum of, like, I've completed this thing, what's the next mission? And I, yeah. I perceive that's what, how we were trained, and I tease some of my male counterparts, and they say, oh, you know, women are difficult to deal with. I said, but you trained us that way. You, we learned from a male veteran, a, a male mm-hmm. military person. They trained us. They trained us, and we, we listened. We followed through, and if we didn't follow through at the right level, you, you retrained us until we met the, you know, met the criterion, and then we were able to execute it. And so now you can't ask us. To, to just be, like, out of the military and just debrief and completely leave that part behind. We are mm-hmm. mission-oriented. We have to have, you know, complete things. And sometimes mm-hmm. to our own exhaustion, um, and so it's learning how to add in, in the civilian sector, the work-life balance of, like, okay, I know I need to co- to finish this mission, but do I have to finish the mission in four hours. Can it be... <laughs> Can it be a month? Can I take a month to do this? You know, I think that's the part that we struggle. I know I do. I struggle personally with that. And so would you say that that's something that, um, is that accurate for you? Um, You know, to to a sense, it is. I I enjoy always having a mission, um, a task, a challenge of some kind. And, again, I think that might have something to do with that commonality we have as military people, you know, in general, we're not the type to um, be complacent and just sit and accept, accept the status quo and be okay with, you know, the bare minimum. We want to learn and advance and succeed and better our lot and the lots of others. So when one mission is done, I'm looking forward to the next one. And, and I think that some of that is for selfish reasons just because I get so much personal fulfillment <laughs> from that, honestly. Um, but, but, yeah, I, I don't know what it is about me. I just always need to have something to do. Well, that's an, that's an awesome thing. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we always look forward to seeing our sisters out in the community doing great things and, you know, giving them accolades about the great work that they're doing and, you know, making sure that um, any any project or service, you know, project, if if at the very minimum that people know it's happening, we, we as an organization may not always be able to participate boots on the ground, but if, if sharing it and passing it along so that there's more participation and or um, lightening the load of, of some of our uh, – our community leaders doing things 
and they just maybe need a, a person resource. Sometimes we are able to do that. And so do you find that um, being a part of um, community groups is helpful to you? I mean, I know we've met on service when women come marching home. Um, I'm an administrator there, and I'm, I bounce in and out. But, you know, I'm still part of the community in general. Mm -hmm. And so do you feel that those communities are helpful um, across the spectrum? Because, you know. Um, the, the military communities, definitely. Um, had it not been for one in particular, um, I would not have known what to do in order to, um, you know, start the process for my, for my VA claim for my sexual assault. So, yes, the, the military communities, absolutely. When, I think that we're atypical of a lot of women because we're sisters, you know, um, and we support each other and we care for each other, even if we've never even met personally, whereas overall in civilian life, um, women still look at each other as, as competition and maybe not don't support each other the way that they should. Um, so those community organizations for military members, absolutely. I've found them a tremendous resource. Um, civilian organizations, uh, not as much. Um, and that's not to say that, that those organizations aren't as good as their military counterparts. I think it's just that our personalities are so much different as veterans um, and our ways of doing things are so much different that sometimes it's a struggle to untrain our brains and, <laughs> and do it the civilian way, which is often the wrong way. <laughs> <laughs> You're laughing well, because you know it's true. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I see a lot of um it's it's there's there is a gap. Um the military, how we were trained, how we approach, how we execute, what you know, what we deem is important is very, very different mm -hmm. than um, the civilian sector, and on top of it, the, 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 the time, the expediency of it, it's very different. We were trained, you know, like I was, you're, you're, um, you're also a uh, signal, so shoot, communicate, move on out, right? Okay, mm -hmm, that's mm -hmm. boom, boom, boom. There's nothing, there is no pause in that. <laughs> you know, there's, there's no pause, and so when you're talking to um, people who everything is a pause, you know, we're going to, we're going to do something, pause. <laughs> we're saying like, well, what, what is it? What is it? Give it to me. And they're like, well, no, we need to discuss what it is we're going to do. And you're like, oh, well, when's the discussion going to happen? <laughs> you know, we're always well, waiting for the next thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then it's the next and thing. So and then it's like reading. It is. It is. It is. <laughs> yeah, you know, for example, you know, you, I didn't graduate from college with my bachelor's until I was 35, you know, and so going to school with people not only who were much younger than I, but also um, civilians, and, and yeah, of course I was a civilian then as well, but yeah, you know what I mean, um, and then getting put into group projects for the love of God, it was like, it was a nightmare, you know, yes. here's our task, 
let's take a couple minutes to decide how we're going to execute the task, divide and conquer, come back together, and go on to the next one. It's just that simple. But, <laughs> you know, I think our brains just work a lot differently than most people's. But it's part of our training, and I think mm-hmm. that we were not trained to be politically correct. We were not <laughs> trained to, um, other than from a protocol, like this person outranks you, that kind of thing, from a protocol point, but we were not trained to, um, you know, engage in, you know, conversation from the point of view of, like, well, let me, you know, make sure you feel okay about what we're saying, and let me make sure you... <laughs> Um, you understand, does that sound, does that sound good? Does that sound correct? Uh, you know, it's like all of those, those, those language cues that are right. necessary in the civilian sector, um, it, they're exhausting because it's, they um, really are. Because we were not trained. And if you, if they got you in the military when you were like 17 or 18 or 19 or 20, your frontal lobe was still you know, forming, and so they got you at a good uh-huh. juicy time for them to like really, you know, tap into that that those those formative years of being like, ah, uh-huh. getting all of it in there. And so now you're set; it's set there. Yeah. And so now it's very difficult. And I find what you're saying is absolutely true. Um, I always joke about our groups. Um, people come to us, uh, WVSJ, and they're like, oh, my gosh, you guys have been planning this for years, I'm sure. And we just look at each other because we might have gotten together a month before and said, okay, we're going to have this, it's going to be this, it's going to be this, blah, 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 move out, you know, and that's it. <laughs> you know, but let's go raise the money, let's go do this. Blah, blah. And, yeah, and so, yes, there is a part of what civilian sector does that is beautiful because they take the time and they really dig deep and find you know, all the details and every piece and everything. But what I found is even when you do that, you'll still miss something. Oh, for so sure. From my perspective, it's like, why take all that time doing all that and you're still going to yeah. miss something when you can get it done, get it done well at an at an excellent, a level of excellence that's way far above everybody else and not take up a bunch of time of everybody's time thinking about exactly. it talking about it. Mm-hmm. Mission first, and Mission you know first. sometimes sometimes you just have to set your your sensitive feelings to the side and realize that it's not <laughs> about that. It's about right. it's about the mission, and yeah. So we talked a little bit earlier about um, about bias, about mm-hmm. being women better, and we we were offline. And we were just kind of getting ready for this this discussion, and we talked a little bit about. Um, bias within um, within the military and then leaving the military, and um, I, I use the term, um, I think that I said it was intentional, and so uh, one of the things I wanted, we don't have to talk about exactly what we, all of the details of it, but would you agree that um, being a highly trained, a highly skilled military veteran, um, based on you know, what is happening in our, our culture related to veterans being welcomed into employment and welcomed into uh, careers and, and funded for their venture, cap, you know, venture capital funded and all of these different things. And and then looking over at our women veteran and seeing that we're starting businesses at 250% annually and there is still not yet one nonprofit that is scaled at the same at the same financial level as our male counterparts, 
And looking at that, I said basically that I think it's intentional bias. And what do you, what is your take on that, that uh, idea or that concept? Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I would like to think that it's gotten better over the years, but I think that there is still the underlying assumption that the male is the head of the household, the breadwinner, the one who should have that successful career, because if the woman doesn't, well, you know, she can always be a wife and a mother. Um, and it's, it's ridiculous. You know, we're, we're still expected to um, play second fiddle to our male counterparts when we have just as much, if not more, to offer. Um, and it's, it's just got to change. It's got to. And is it going to change by the men realizing that they're being um, misogynistic, you know, I'm not going to say what I want to say, but or is it going to take <laughs> <laughs> is it going to take women to finally stand up and demand their rightful place? And it, it might be a combination of both. But you know, as women, we have to support and empower each other and give each other that nudge that we need to go out and and stick our flag in the earth and say, "This is mine. I'm taking it." Right. And so do you have, maybe you have some thoughts about how to do that. Um, I know with us, we're always um, wanting to make sure that women that are in our executive trained, they have the, the um, soft skills that they need, have the technical skills that they need, and we coach and mentor. And so those pieces kind of float out there, consistently float out there. But we also give them the experiential opportunities to, um, as I say, the you know, play in our sandbox and get an opportunity mm-hmm. to test out their ideas and thoughts and theories um, through, uh, you know, piloting programs within our organization. And so um, I, I, I'm not saying that there are not other organizations that do that. Um, I don't know that they do it at that level. Um, but do you think basically, because like I said, you have the evaluative skills because that's what you do all the time um, to be able to look at, you know, what could work or what might work do you think that they, what do you think would also work alongside of the things that I've mentioned um, to helping you know more of us scale um, to the higher levels of the C and the B suite of uh, corporate America? You know, being the directors, um, <clears throat> being the senior executive staff of you know the government, being <laughs> the, the president and the VP of organizations. Those these are the things that I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, I kind of see three pieces to the puzzle, two of, two of which you've already mentioned. The first, obviously, is education. Um, and I'm not talking necessarily college-level education, but just, you know, learning. Um, the second would be um, that piece about mentoring one another and giving each other those experiences um, that we need. But then the third is just kind of retraining our own brains and our own mindsets to 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 feel okay being perceived as a bitch um, if, if you're being assertive and saying, no, this is the way we're going to do it. Um, or, you know, the simple things like not shrinking 
when you're in a room full of male executives or not accepting that misogynistic sexist comment that someone made or telling this this male CEO that, no, it's not okay for you to put your hand on the back of my neck when you're speaking to me. Um, You know, unlearning all of those bad behaviors that women before us have accepted for so long that, that are just the norm still in some ways. I think that's a huge part of it. Yeah. Yeah, that's... I mean, I, I, I even find myself doing it still, you know, on occasion. I'm, you know, I am five foot ten and 200 pounds and strong as hell. And I'm, I'm an intimidating force when you look at me physically. But there are still occasions when I will find myself shrinking myself because there's a man who might be um, smarter or stronger or whatnot. And then, and then I'm like, damn, Kim, why are you doing that? Mm. And so it's just a matter of, of learning and changing those, those bad behaviors. Wow. You know, and now that you said it, I, I can see times that I've done that the same, even if it's temporary, even if it's for a moment um, mm-hmm. where I've, you know, absconded my power to someone else and said, you know, like, oh, this is Mr. So-and-so. I've got to be a certain way with this person because he's male and he's older. And I think we right. do that uh, a lot because that's that's part of our training as well in my generation and possibly your generation, we were taught to respect our elders. And then as women, mm-hmm. we were taught to, um, you know, respond a certain kind of way to our male counterparts. And uh, in the military, we were trained to respect and honor the men. We were never mm-hmm. trained to respect and honor one another as women. Think about what right. I'm saying. And, in, and, at least in my, and at least in my generation, there weren't a lot of those great female um, military role models to look up to in respect. Mm-hmm. You know, the higher level NCOs and the officers, they were always men. Mm-hmm. You're right. We have and you know, it's co- co- Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say, you know, it, it, it's one thing to, to go ahead and, and allow someone to have the power or the voice if they are the more experienced person or the expert on the matter or whatnot. But if it's simply because of gender um, and because you're expected to, then then that's so wrong. And we've got to cut that shit out. Exactly. You're exactly right. We do have to <laughs> cut it out. The challenge is going to be for us as women to mentor and coach each other um, collectively, um, how to do it when, you know, for other women to see us stand up and, you know, in, in exchange in a very tactful, professional way <clears throat> when those those situations happen and then us mirror that behavior for them so that they can see it and be like, wow, that was empowering. I saw that and I'm going to try that myself. And then mm-hmm. when they do, support them in that process. It's, 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 it's multi-layered. It's almost like we have to do, you know, everything in tandem. We're, we're managing it all at the same time. It's not like right. we're going to do this one little thing over here and wait and see what happens. We have to do this, 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 and this, and do it all at the same time. And at the same, and, and while we're doing that 
for ourselves. We have to do it with other people. And right. then, you know, and then come back and evaluate how, how did that work and then tweak everything. Yeah. And so it's like, uh, I'm an instructional design student. So it's, it's like, you know, they call it iteration. So you're just like, you're doing it and you're managing it and you're seeing what works. And then at the same time, you're making the corrections until we mm-hmm. refine it to a science so that it really helps our, 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 the next generation of women. So they're coming into this, that we can get them when their frontal lobes are not fully developed and we can train them with that. <laughs> exactly. and people move in and they don't, they won't have this other stuff in the background running. Um, exactly. and, and I think this, that's what we find is so difficult with the millennial, um, generation is, is that they, they do to some degree have that, but it's not structured. It's not been scaffolded appropriately so that, you know, so, so it's like on one end, it's like, yeah, you know, you know, the bias is you don't have it and you, 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 you know, you're, you're identifying as, as you see fit. And at the same time, there needs to be a level of respect and honor to people based on their knowledge, not necessarily mm-hmm. their age. So it's like all Absolutely. of those pieces have to happen. Um, and I think that that's where, where sometimes there's a bit of a disconnect between the generations. But as it relates to us as women veterans, I think even in the generations of women veterans, it's interesting how all of us kind of still get along fairly well, mm-hmm. even though we're different generations of people. Right. Um, whereas in the civilian sector, you really see the, 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 the cutoff line of like, this is where this line cuts off and this changes and that's a completely different place. Whereas in the mm-hmm. military, there's a lot of things that still tie us together. For um, sure. Regardless of what our generational um, differences are. So for sure. I want to find out if you have any last thoughts that you want to share with us because we've actually ending our second um, uh, podcast with you. It's been great with this conversation. We're probably going to end up having to have a third one. Um, but mm-hmm. do you have any thoughts that you'd like to leave with our um, listening audience uh, for their just, career you moving know, forward? Yeah, just, you know, reach and grab and um, you know, don't dim your shine for anybody. You know, as Lizzo says, when I shine, everybody's gonna shine. Exactly. So, you know, it's just don't, don't conform, don't settle for mediocrity, whatever it is you want, go and get it. And if you don't know how, you reach out to your sisters and we help you. Yeah. Wow, that's powerful, especially ending off with a Lizzo uh, quote because uh, Lizzo effect <laughs> is in full effect. And so I definitely appreciate you um, being on this uh, second podcast with us and just sharing so many great deep things. I look forward to maybe having you on again um, and maybe we can get into some deeper thoughts with some of our others uh, from our senior ambassadors who are in everything from politics to business and, and advocacy. And so um, it'd be great to maybe have a, a an opportunity to share some more thoughts with you if that's all right. Absolutely. Heck yeah. I've, I've always got uh, opinions to share. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much, Kim. And thank you, everyone, thank for you. listening. Um, this is Bridget McCoy of Women Veterans Social Justice Network here on Heroes Media Group. We definitely appreciate you for honoring us by um, listening to the show and hope to hear have you back with us here next week. God showed me here is where I'd be always sometimes.